And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help your help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome, Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're discussing the 1953 William Wyler classic, Roman Holiday. Starring Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck, and Eddie Elbert. So, as we lead each week... What is your relationship to this film? Uh, I think it's only the second time I'd ever seen it. And uh, first time was about three years ago. And I think it was on one of those Friday nights where I was dog tired and may have nodded off at, at times during the film. So I had a hard time remembering it until I actually started watching it again. Then I went, oh, yes, I have watched this. So, um... This is a movie that the only relationship I had to it outside of I watched it with you that first time and I watched it again with you now the second time. But all of the relationship I have to this film is through everybody else's work. So Gregory Peck, knowing him from To Kill a Mockingbird and Gentleman's Agreement, knowing Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady, um, knowing Eddie Albert for uh, you obsessively watching... TV land early on and being uh, a Green Acres um, fan uh, and William uh, Wyler for his other movies, even a couple that we've kind of generally discussed so far on this. You forgot one of Audrey Hepburn's greatest films, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I didn't forget it. I haven't seen it. Oh, well, it's it is one of her better films. If you and can overlook Mickey Rooney playing a Japanese man in a completely racist uh, portrayal. Yeah, um, that's going to be probably one of our least classic uh, movies for that particular <laughs> role. I mean, yeah. that, that's going to potentially ruin the entire movie. Uh, not to mention that he got a, um acting nomination for doing that. Yes, so. Um, one of one of the worst black marks on the Academy Awards. Anyway, um, so back to this movie. Uh, yeah, all of my relationship to it is is through other things. Even you know, uh, I guess this movie gained a certain level of additional notoriety here. Um, uh, not too long ago, because we had the movie Trumbo come out, and this was widely discussed as part of that film. Um, there was a retroactive um, Academy Award given to Dalton Trumbo that his uh, uh, 
widow collected on his behalf in the late 80s, early 90s, I think. Um, and, you know, the history surrounding this um, production as being, him being a part of it, um, if you haven't seen the movie, I would uh, recommend that you kind of watch it. I mean, it's at least worth um, a viewing. Um, Brian Cranston does a good job playing him and um, all that was going on. Because there's a lot surrounding the whole blacklist era of Hollywood that they still haven't really dealt with or really touched on because Hollywood is not uh, great at being self-aware most of the time. Um, but really the, the blacklist didn't get to be of, of significance until Woody Allen did a film in the seventies. And I cannot remember the name of the film. Um, but it all, everybody who wrote it with Woody Allen or starred in it had been blacklisted. And the co-star was zero Mostel. And so everybody in there had been blacklisted, including Zero Mostel. And the whole idea of the film was is to bring to light all of this talent in Hollywood that was banned uh, for no reason than just um, supposed political subversion. Okay. I, I'm not familiar with that one, but that might be something. Although I... Uh, I'm a touch and go on Woody Allen movies, depending on which one. I haven't seen all of them, but there are some I like, there are some I don't care for, and that seems to be most people's opinion. But uh, I'm sure we'll get to at least his most famous one at some point. So, are uh, we ask our our good friend from Minnesota to uh, join us? You're going to be able to stomach his opinions on the movie. I don't he's mind gonna the movie. Be, he's going to be so aggressive about the whole thing. It's just going to be him and I going back and forth yelling at each other. Well, that would be worth the entertainment. <laughs> I suppose it would make an interesting podcast. Uh, anyway, I, I, I guess we can because I, I, well, we'll get into that on another date. So anyway, again, yet again, back to this movie. Um, so for our next normal plot line, but uh, just the quick overview of the movie. Uh, overwhelmed by her suffocating schedule, touring European princess Anne, played by Audrey Hepburn, takes off for a night while in Rome. When a sedative she took from her doctor kicks in, however, she falls asleep on a park bench and is found by an American reporter, Joe Bradley, played by Gregory Peck, who takes her back to his apartment for safety. At work the next morning, Joe finds out Anne's regal identity and bets his editor he can get an exclusive interview with her, but romance soon gets in the way. So, uh, we'll go quickly. So, this film was nominated for Best Picture that year. Um, it did not win. Um, I'm trying to remember what won in 53. Uh, I can't remember offhand, but uh, director for William Wyler, supporting actor for Eddie Albert, Screenplay, art direction, cinematography, and film editing. It won for Best Actress uh, for Audrey Hepburn, Story for Dalton Trumbo, and Costume Design. Uh, it is recognized by the AFI as the number four romantic comedy of all time, and it was a 1999 National Film Registry uh, submit E. So. I believe the, uh, the wardrobe was Edith Head. Yes, you are correct. Yeah, I think Edith had had like something like 
11 Academy Awards or something like that. I think she just like completely dominates uh, that category. Kind of the same way John Williams dominated the musical categories. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Um, what is this movie about? Well, it's about... It's a combination. I mean, it's in some ways the story of a reporter trying to get the story. It's also the story of how young people, especially in something like royalty or thrust into positions where they have to act and behave in a certain way and sacrifice their childhood. And so she wants to just experience life as a normal person for a while and Ultimately, Gregory Peck, Joe Bradley, figures this out and realizes that he can't manipulate or not really manipulate. um, What's the term I'm looking for? Um, Take advantage of the situation for his own personal gain. So this might be the one where we've kind of been um, the farthest apart so far. Um, usually you and I have kind of closer ones. I said it was the personal struggle between life, love, and responsibility. I think especially the best part of this movie is probably the last half an hour. Um, and the, the parts that it delves into, like the rest of it is fun and it's cute and whatever else. But when you really start to dig into the themes or that last half an hour, it's a two hour film, but, um, where, you know, she, needs to go back he doesn't want her to but understands and they come to kind of a mutual understanding of um we all have our roles to play in the world and unfortunately um that means or that we can't have the things that we want all the time we have to submit to a certain level of responsibility of the roles we have to play okay all right by the way, the film that won that year was just a little film, From Here to Eternity. Yes, it's the movie where uh, Sarah and I started watching last week, then Sarah got too tired, and it expired off of uh, TCM. Ah. Uh, well, that's uh, bad. Not a bad year for movies. Most of the years of the 50s had some uh, pretty great years, so... There's a hilarious version of it, a parody that was done by Sid Seizure on Show of Shows with Carl Reiner um, playing the uh, the part that was uh, uh, Frank Sinatra. And uh, uh, the part that was... Um, uh, why am I drawing a blank as to the, the main actor in the film? Anyway... Um, Montgomery Cliff was played by um, Sid Caesar. It's it's hilarious. Yeah, I could actually buy that. They kind of aren't too far apart in looks. So, all right. So, who is your best performer? Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. All right. So why? Um, she portrayed herself 
this see she was able to portray herself in a dichotomy throughout the film innocent but worldly beautiful but common um you know inquisitive but reserved i mean she just had this knack for you know portraying herself in two very different lights almost simultaneously so I absolutely agree with that pick. Uh, I don't think this is Weiler's best film. He's got so many other great ones. I mean, we this is our back-to-back um, Weiler discussion. I didn't even realize it when I started picking these that um, that was a part of it. We did uh, Best Years of Our Lives last week. I mean, he's still got Ben-Hur in his um, cinema or uh, s- filmography, I guess is the word. Yes. Um, but uh, Hepburn absolutely knocks everybody else out of the way through most of this picture. Other than the portions where she's sleeping and Peck is starting to like do some levels of physical comedy around her, she just her level of charisma completely outshines him. She dominates every single scene that she is in in this movie through just a certain charismatic aura um, that cannot be beat. Uh, I, I don't, you just, there is a, an almost intangible quality to everything she does in this movie that makes you uh, almost adore her. And for the sake that, you know, this isn't her first movie overall. This was just her first American movie. But to find her out of literally nowhere and catapult her into superstardom, um, I think this is probably by far her best performance. Uh, Every other one is kind of trying to relive this certain glitter or glimmer of um, charisma. And, uh, you know, it's it's tough when, like, the first big one out or the first break you get is like the big or the best thing you do so you mean like Orson Welles that, or Citizen Kane was not his first movie um it was his first major film I mean define major he'd made studio films uh, okay anyway it was the first one where he got complete control but that was the first one anybody got complete control. So, all right, best minor performance. Uh, Eddie Albert. You and I, we we're gonna have to find somebody that like has a different opinion. You and I agree way too freaking much. I don't know. He he always he was a charmer throughout the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, he's just another. Uh, you know, for a movie that, first off, Gregory Peck, it might be one of the most uh, handsome leading men of uh, any period, let alone this one. Uh, he Just that jawline and that, like, quiet um, strength and confidence that he seems to have, um, I, would, I would put him against just about everybody um, that you can possibly name as, like, you know, a, a star I don't care whether that's Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen had different intangibles. I'd put him above Cary Grant. Um, you know, there there's just a certain level of thing. But he got outplayed by 
two other just grade A performances. Yes. I, you know, Albert, he's not in the film a ton, but every time he is, it's uh, almost a great comedic effect. Like the, all the physical humor that the two of them go through every time Peck is trying to um, stop Albert from like saying something that he doesn't want him to say. You know, all the little things, tipping his chair over, spilling his drink, um, tripping him, etc. And he just kind of has a natural act to play it up for uh, the camera without it being too much. You, uh, when you watch his performance in this, you realize that uh, there's a lot of this that ended up becoming part of the character of Oliver Douglas in Green Acres, because the the basic premise of that TV show was is he's the sane guy in a world of insanity. Yeah, it's kind of the fish out of water uh, storyline. But everybody in the story, including his wife, was insane. And he, his reaction, um, you know, borderline exploding because he just can't believe the stupidity around him. Um, but anyway, I just saw a lot of that same character in the film. All right. Uh, I'm pretty sure you can guess who my most charismatic award is. But who was yours? Uh, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. And yours is the same. You've only referred to her as charismatic four times during the original statements <laughs> you're making. I know. And that's I why I don't count. mind giving it away. But uh, it, it's. You can't be sucked in any harder by that smile. It's just not possible. Well, you know, I. I had, because I did the play, My Fair Lady, as you know, in high school. And um, I went and watched, or after the play was over, the cast all got together. The, our director, Lauren Sass, told us not to watch the movie before we did the play. But afterwards, we all got together as a cast, and I can't remember whose house, and we watched the play. And I fell in love with Audrey, or with uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn at that point in time, because... She was just absolutely beautiful and so uh, vulnerable. And there's just everything about her. That's that... a great way of putting it. There, there's just a certain quality that seems accessible because of that. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's a male thing. Um, maybe females would have a different um, aspect to it. But there's just... You know, I, whether that's vulnerability, accessibility, whatever you want to put on it, there, there's a. I still feel it's an intangible quality that just draws you into everything she does, particularly in this movie. So, all right, uh, best scene. So my nominees include the opening procession line, where she's fidgeting with her shoe, and it, it falls over. She can't seem to put it back on, but she's trying to greet all these dignitaries. So, number two, um, find, or uh, Peck finds Hepburn drugged up in the street. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, Joe lies to his boss, then makes a big discovery. Okay. 
Uh, Irving meets Anya. Okay. The Mouth of Truth. The Barber Shop. The Barge Fight. And the final interview. For me, it's the barge fight. Okay. Why Why do you say that? It's the culmination of the film. It's where she completely lets go of being the princess and becomes the common person. She's going to help protect Joe. He's fighting for her. And it just puts everything. It pits her against her position as royalty. And makes her common at that moment in time. But it's short-lived. She soon realizes that she can't stay in that position. So, I actually had the final interview because uh, I think that's the most emotional weight of the entire thing. Um, It's similar to me um, in the way that uh, La La Land, the last, like, 15, 20 minutes is kind of the what could have been era. You know, those those certain things that um, don't always end the way you want them to, that don't have that fairy tale, but you come to a certain understanding. I don't know why that always works for me. It just does. Um, and I think it actually makes this better than um, just a run-of-the-mill rom-com um, that... You know, there were complications to everything that was going on with their meeting and um, them being friends or whatever else. But uh, ultimately, it's borne out by um, them kind of coming to that understanding in the room outside of everybody else. And then followed up by the fact that um, uh, Irving gives in the pictures because he kind of understands what's going on, too. You know, even though he could have had personal gain, he understands the moment. Yes. So I mean, I, uh, have, I can't fault you for your selection, but I just I enjoyed the uh, barge scene more. Oh, no, I, I get it. And that's a great scene by itself. I just, I, again, I think the best part of the movie is that last half hour. And I you could have done several parts of that um you know, a scene I didn't have on there, but is kind of that um, emotional weightiness is them in the car, him dropping her off um, to go back to her life or her basically um, figuring out how to stand up for herself in her royal duties and start to um, assert her uh, level of confidence and dominance among the staff who've been basically bossing her around her entire life. You know, those both of those have um, certain elements, and they weren't on my initial list. But I mean, you could put that in there because that—that's where you see the catharsis of the entire event. Yeah, uh, her growth as an individual. So, uh, for favorite scene, I just uh, for whatever reason, I I loved that initial um, meeting when Irving comes to the cafe and. Um, he he keeps trying to give the way, game away, but Joe, you know, spills uh, a drink on him, kicks over his chair, trips, does all this stuff, and finally pulls him out into the hall. But just I, for whatever reason, 
that scene just works between the two of them, that kind of like uh, tit-for-tat uh, repartee that they just seemingly have going. It's It seems uh, natural, and I don't know if that's more of an element of um, directing, acting, or editing, but it, there was something that worked for me in that one. The answer to your question or your statement is yes. It's not one aspect. It's all three of them together. Probably. I, it's usually a combination, uh, but sometimes one influences a little bit more over the other, but when you have all of those points intersecting, um, it's it's possible that you just get the best out of all of it. So what was your favorite scene then? Um, I like the the opening scene with her at the ball in the shoe because I think it just it set the tone of what the film was about and why it was taking place. She was young and um, naive and she was longing for something she couldn't have. Okay. Uh, so most indelible moment, um, it's for me, it's the one that you see on every, um, like old movie classic montage. Oh, and if there's one scene that they include out of any of these that's ever in that, it's the mouth of truth where he fakes losing his hand. Ah, like that's the only (laughs) one I've ever seen because it's got a certain element of physical humor to it. That's. Um, quick and easy to be able to use um, in something that's usually like if you have a musical overlay or something um, that you can be able to do. But that that scene does work because, you know, he 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 pulls a fast one, obviously, by, you know, my hands missing or whatever else. But uh, what do you think is the most indelible moment? Um, Actually, it's probably the scene where they're riding through Rome on the scooter. Um, in fact, the there are clubs both in Italy and in the United States, and I cannot remember the name of those scooters. It's a Vespa. Uh, a Vespa, that's it. There are Vespa clubs. Uh, mm-hmm. A vintage Vespa can sell for ten to fifteen thousand dollars in good shape. Yeah, and I mean that is a, a classic staple. Of yeah, I mean, you watch any um, anything that goes on in Italy or, like, Rome or whatever else um, during this period or even modern. Like, I remember scenes from Master of None where he's riding one around or whatever else. That's that's a fairly common Italian uh, trope of this. Um, that's Yeah, I, I buy that because it was on the cover of um, a lot of uh, the things that uh, – or the cover of this movie on, like, streaming or – uh, the poster, whatever it was. So, um, all right. Uh, that's probably a good place to just cut quickly for our sponsor. Uh, we'll be right back. And we're back. All right. So best line. Um, I don't think this was a particularly great movie for lines per se. Um, there were a couple of them, but uh, you know, I, the dialogue is more, full as opposed to quippy so um but all right so first uh, nominee i had rome i will cherish my visit here in memory as long as i live 
it's probably the emotional climax for the movie. So, um, early on in the movie, um, with uh, her maid, or I guess it was a countess or something, but um, Princess Anne, why can't I sleep in pajamas? Countess Vera Berg, pajamas? Just the top part. Did you know that that there are people who sleep with absolutely nothing on at all? I rejoice to say I do not. Uh, Princess Anne, um, the uh, farewell scene. I have to leave you now. I'm going to that corner there and turn. You must stay in the car and drive away. Promise not to watch me go beyond the corner. Just drive away and leave me as I leave you. All right. I don't know how to say goodbye. I can't think of any words. Don't try. Okay. okay. Uh, and I have two more. Um, Joe Bradley. Irving, am I glad to see you? Irving, why? Did you forget your wallet? Okay. Uh, final one. Joe, you should always wear my clothes. Princess Anne, it seems I do. Which is my nominee for funniest line. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any others that stuck what out was to the, you? What was the line that he said that he, at the very end, that he's um, basically acknowledging that he's going to keep everything to himself? I don't remember that one. Because he, at the end, he says, Your Highness can be assured that uh, trust has been placed or something to that effect. Yeah. I think you can look that one up. I did see that one a little bit in the research, but that wasn't the final line, so that's why you had me confused. So, uh, okay. Is that your uh, nominee for best line? Yes, because it really kind of lets her know that her memories can be kept that she doesn't have to try to hide from those, that she can keep those, that special few days locked away in her heart, in her memory, and not have to worry about it coming back to haunt her. Oh, here. May I say, speaking for my own press service, we believe your highness's faith will not be unjustified. Yeah. And uh, did you have a honorable mention? Um, I do like the the whole thing with uh, the exchange. I'm glad, Irving. I'm glad to see you. Would you forget your wallet? Yeah, that was a good one. Is that your nominee for funniest? Yeah, because it's not like there are a lot of rib ticklers here. No, I mean, there were some cute lines here and there, but um, I think it was more of um, the overall, but... Yeah, it's not... Uh, you get a bowl of soup with that hat? Funny, but... Um... Okay, <laughs> but that's that's a much different movie <laughs> that we haven't touched it yet, so... I'm waiting for that. All right. So, uh, ready for the grading? Sure. All right. So, first one up, Legacy. 
Uh, I had a seven and a half. Uh, that's exactly what I had, but what's your argument for that? It is a film that everybody knows about. Very few have actually seen the whole thing, and very few actually go and put it on their list of things where they go, that's yeah, one of my favorite films. And so it's it's out there, and it's a good film, and it's well-regarded, but it just doesn't have legs of its own. Honestly, I think the biggest portion of this, um, and, and I would tend to agree with you, in fact, because of that, I might even grade it down, but the only, or the major impact of this has to do with um, who was in it and what happened after the, the fact. The fact that... Uh, Dalton Trumbo won his only um, Oscar for this movie, but it was in in uh, um, retrospect, you know, well after the fact because he couldn't accept it himself, and they basically posed somebody else as the real author at the time. So you know, th- there's a missed opportunity, and I don't know if um, rewarding this film should be part of it. That being said, um, you know, you think of a conglomerate of talent of all of these people that got together and made um, an excellently well done film that just kind of doesn't get its due. Um, It's kind of unfortunately probably um, uh, underrated in that regard. But that's kind of why we've been doing the podcast as we do. I mean, one of our top-rated movies is still Groundhog Day on the list. We're trying to reach out to genres that don't necessarily get the same level of acclaim um, and maybe break the barrier of the, like, cemented top ten that seems to be everybody's top ten all the time. This is going to be one of those films that everybody's... You're going to ask the... the, uh, the uh cinemaphiles to rank their top 25 films of all time and then give us 10 more that are honorable mention you're going to find this film on the honorable mention probably as much as any other film for that very reason i i'd be curious to see if that experiment has happened because i don't think that that would necessarily be the case um but there this falls in that weird category of the kind of romantic comedies that got some acclaim at the time, but don't have the same staying power. So something like the Philadelphia story that, um, you know, you have uh, a um, cross with uh, Cary Grant's in it, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Catherine Hepburn, uh, and it ends up winning a bunch of awards. But is that like ever appearing on anybody's top 100 list? I mean, the the cross-section of what is or isn't part of these great films of all time, I think we've gotten so stuck in certain films and against other films and this notion that there are only, like, four or five of them that are the greatest movies of all time. And that's, that's the exact reason why this exists. Uh, I want to be able to break it up because... Um, you know, I have very different or, you know, against the grain views on things like Citizen Kane or The Wizard of Oz by comparison to general critics. But I also think that there are underrated films that appear further down most lists that need 
to be boosted up that I think are better than you know people have given. <laughs> and or films that we haven't given a chance to that never appeared on the list. I know, and some of it's the fact that the films aren't watched. You know, they they don't have the um, well, they don't have the following, so people don't watch them as much, and so they don't appreciate them. But I think you're going to see this because films, and this is where we talk about legacy. Films change based on cultural norms. One oh, yeah. thing that we're going to end up having to do right now because of, and for those you know who may listen to this out of order, we're in the middle of the the uh, George Floyd um, protests. Everybody's now looking as to whether uh, Gone with the Wind should be even considered worth watching anymore. Well, I'm having a hard time. I've told you that, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to watch all of the Best Picture winners and the AFI list. And it didn't appear in the most recent version, but the original version of the AFI list had Birth of a Nation as one of its top films, or at least in the top 100. And I'm going to struggle trying to (laughs) watch that, let alone give it the same level of i mean it's an important film but is it a great film i think those are two different things so i i tend to agree that 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 might be an overall struggle but that's why we're putting things like classicness in this where we can give certain movies or have different takes on them for what they were at the time but also now um you know, where they were at. Are they pushing the narrative? Are they doing something different? You know, the the other side of this, the amount of films that are probably going to appear on our list that weren't great films at the time they were made. You know, Citizen Kane kind of was a flop. Um, the Wizard of Oz and uh, It's a Wonderful Life were flops. The Shawshank Redemption got awards recognition, but it didn't really get like a public viewing until it got on cable every weekend for like twenty years. This is a good trivia question. When did or did uh, uh, the Wizard of Oz finally make uh, back its uh, production costs? Probably in the sixties. Well, it wasn't quite then. It was nineteen fifty-three. It was when when uh, one of the networks actually broadcast it as their week their movie of the week, and the co- or the payment they made finally gained um, enough money to that that paid off their costs and they broke even finally. Took them took them to, or uh, um, fifth or fourteen years. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but. but- we yeah, know I mean, last week, and we're, like, we're talking about it. And I refused for the longest time to watch Gone with the Wind because I always, being a, a historian and being somebody in tune with military history, was appalled and nauseated by the lost cause mentality. And you know, and today being the day that NASCAR announces they're going to ban anybody from using the Confederate flag at a NASCAR event. Um, you know, I mean, it's going to be tough, but that's why I'm only pointing this out because as those films become more difficult to view and less popular because of the nature of the films and the subject matter, you're going to see films like this, which holds up. 
you could release that film today and it would have an audience because it's not dated um, if, at all. If you put it in color, yes. Yeah. I don't think a modern audience, you know, we know you and I both know people that like have a problem with anything that's in black and white, you know, and just the way it's presented. But that that that's a different thing entirely. But yes, this entire story, honestly, they could probably do a gross remake and it would probably be somewhat successful. Yeah. Uh, um, what? Yeah, I'm just was trying to think of some of the characters that could play in the the more recent. Well, so first off, you'd have to have three very charismatic and younger people. <sighs> I know uh, that. So let's let's not break that. We can maybe save yeah. that remaining questions or the ending part of the podcast but all right so what did you have for impact or significance um i had a a seven and a half again i think it has some significance and some staying power but it's not overwhelming So, so the way that we have started to gravitate this towards is legacy is its um overall impact over time or like how it's remembered and impact is more in the moment and realistically this movie had only one major piece other than i mean it was a highly recognized film but it only had one major impact um that i can think of and it's basically to make audrey hepburn a star outside of that i don't think it had a ton of effect so i actually went a six okay i could see that i I do know. I mean, because I think it was the next year that uh, Audrey Hepburn did Sabrina with Glenn Ford. That's correct. And, uh, you know, it kind of did launch her career more or less and put her on the map. Um, Well, I mean, she won the best actress for this. Yeah. Um, For Gregory Peck, he had been doing a a great body of work up to then. He had done Spellbound with um, Ingrid Bergman. He'd done Gentleman's Agreement no. from uh, 47, 48. That no, one best I think he won um, Best Actor for it. Although the his most famous role is the year after this, and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So, uh, I guess, do we average that out to a 6.75 then? 6.5 is fine. Okay. All right, uh, what did you have for novelty? I I had wrestled with this because ultimately I thought this was uh, almost um, the love you couldn't have. So there was a certain aspect of Romeo and Juliet. There was a certain aspect of longing for a life in the free world, which was, I even pointed that out while we were watching it, this seemed to have an element of Prince and the Pauper. So uh, I novelty, it was a good film, but novelty, I had it a 6.5. Okay. I actually went the opposite way. Uh, I have a little bit higher. I have it as an 8. Um, and it was simply because um, this is, you know, romantic comedies were not uh, as prevalent as they sometimes were, like, during the 90s or 2000s or whatever else where they were basically just pumping them out. But, um, and this one... Yeah, it had something for date night during that time frame. Right. 
but this is a different type of uh, romantic comedy. Not only for its ending, where you know you don't get that um, you know happy ending that you're expecting, but also that um, you're dealing with international relations and it's a foreign uh, country movie. You're using a lot of other languages. Um, you know, there there aren't a lot of um, the, pop culture films kind of like this in the same regard. I mean, I might be willing to come down a little bit on that one, but I just, and, and again, I, I agree with you. This was a tough one to try and get because there's, I don't think there's anything subject material wise that they embark on that's novel. And I don't think there's anything technical or conceptual that they're really doing differently. It's just, you know, there are a couple of things that I can kind of hit on, but I, I, you know what? I'll come down to about a seven, so um, that'll actually put it at a six, seven, five between the two of us. Okay. Uh, you know, I just, I guess I can't even argue too much above a seven uh, at that point. So it, it's just one of those things where you're trying to figure it out and you don't have a great answer, but. So, classicness, we've kind of already gone gone through a bit, but uh, I gave it a straight nine. There's really nothing in this that, and honestly, I probably could have gone higher, but I didn't want to, like, give it a full ten. But we already mentioned, this could be basically re-released in color now and not have any problem. There, There's really nothing in here. <sighs> uh, they were a little risque at the time for... Um, kind of sexual innuendo, uh, which I found interesting, but not like over the top. So this would be a very basic PG-13 date movie. And yes. I think it would still be successful. Yes. So, I, so. I, I give it a 9. What did you have? I had 8.5. Okay. So I'll, I'll go with your 9. All right. I just couldn't find too many ways to really downgrade it. And usually classicness for me, I kind of start in that 10 to 9 area. And unless you have something egregious or like um, there are some pieces that don't hold up or aren't consistent, I really don't. I have a problem grading it too far down, which maybe, you know, we need to rethink the category at some point. But that's kind of where I'm at. So rewatchability. I probably could rewatch this film, but I don't think it's one that. Um, I feel compelled to go back to or to rewatch often. It's not one that if it's on, I'm like, oh, okay. But if somebody hasn't seen the film, um, that and like, you know, you're introducing somebody to it, that would be a perfect opportunity where you're like, okay, this is a really good movie that you'll enjoy and it's light, poppy, fun. Um, you know, it. it goes in a direction at the end you aren't expecting. So I have a seven uh, for that. Um, it's not something that I'm going to be just like watching over and over and over again in the same way that I do certain movies, at least from where I'm drawn to. But it certainly is not an um, unwatchable uh, rewatch. I had 7.5, but I'll go with your seven. Okay. By the way, I just was thinking of actors who could do the film on modern times. Um, the um, the princess and Margot Robbie. Yeah, that's a good one. And I, I, I for, 
and for um uh she's oh she's got the, the sex the, appeal and the intangibles that are there and, yeah. and the uh, Eddie Albert and I'm drawing a blank as to the character what's he in the character's name Eddie Albert oh, Irving Irving Seth Rogen no, he's he's too old for the part, and he's kind of no. I I think you need somebody that's a little bit more charismatic. Um, even if it is a sidekick, kind of in the way that uh, in a movie you probably haven't seen yet, but it will eventually be covering uh, Swingers. The way like Vince Vaughn is the wingman to Favreau in Swingers. How about Ryan Reynolds to play the Gregory Peck part? Yeah, I could buy that. I mean, you're getting two extremely charismatic people. And the thing I I don't want, though, is, is for him to overplay it into the, the general sarcasm. And he works best when he's um, quippy. Like, his best movies have always been where he's, like, the sarcastic guy. You know, and if we're going to go, uh, we're going to stretch a little bit. How about the Irving part being played by um, Aziz Asari? Yeah, I could buy that. That actually would be a pretty good one. I mean, can't you just picture him getting kicked over and him standing up with that uh, nasally whine that he yeah. does in some of yeah. his things? Hey! What are you doing? Yeah, I could definitely buy it. Honestly, that that's a good call. That that's a really good call. Because that that satisfies some of your diversity play, you know, as we're wont to do now, but um so all right. So uh 9.3 for a total audience score um adding in to the general effect. So it comes out as a 46.05 as its final total. Uh, and let me just see where that fits in quickly. So that slots it in between Goodfellas and Slumdog Millionaire for our current number 10 slot. That's probably about right. Yeah, I, I you know, so just a rundown of our current top 10. Um, Number 10, Roman Holiday, 9, Goodfellas, 8, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 7, Taxi Driver, 6, Apocalypse Now, 5, Some Like It Hot, 4, Groundhog Day, 3, Pulp Fiction, 2, The Best Years of Our Lives, and number 1, Back to the Future. So, <laughs> okay. again, I, I think that one's going to require a revisit at some point, you know, that we do, um, we're, we're going to do... Uh, a revisit every so often um we'll and wait a little bit because i don't want to i don't want to skewed european well it skewed super fan ah and they enjoyed doing the podcast so i was i was very glad to have them and i'm, I'm glad that they enjoyed um being able to talk about it. we always um encourage people to um you know have conversations about their favorite movies and um, you know, be part of that. And that's, that's another reason for doing this. But, um, you know, <laughs> I don't think if you and I both critically went on that one, that, uh, that would be quite the same, uh, outcome. 
Well, and I will say that um, I posted on my Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook our um, the link for our podcast uh, mm-hmm. for um, the best years of our lives. And I had more response from people who I went to high school and college with mm-hmm. uh, than any other one I've posted. Because they all are closet fans of the best years of our lives for the very reason that so many of them have had family who came back from Vietnam, who came back from uh, the Persian Gulf War, who came back from Iraq or Afghanistan, and they understand the film and appreciate it for what it was. Yeah, I I would tend to agree that um, it, it is very deserving of where we put it right now on the list. And I don't know if it's one that necessarily would be popping up on everybody's list where we currently have it. I certainly don't think the general population is um, putting, you know, that film or Groundhog Day or some like it hot, like, you know, in their top five. But, you know, this has been a fun ride and we haven't even covered some of the like, you know, tentpole greatest quote unquote films so far. You know, we haven't gotten to Star Wars. We haven't gotten to Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz. You know, some of the other ones that are Lawrence of Arabia, any of the Godfather movies, but uh, Casablanca. Yeah. yeah. So. But I, I it would be I, it would be fascinating to take a group of 100 people, average people, cross section of America and to show them what we finally rank as our 50 greatest films. There are going to be films that some of them have never seen and just make each of them watch each film and then great grade them and my guess is is that we'll end up with a with a list much different than uh any of the um uh lists that have been compiled by the film or by the academy or by any of the other uh groups that do these rankings no i would definitely agree with you on that front um it it has a certain um how to put it, um, different quality when it, it comes to that. Um, everybody's going to have a different opinion. But ultimately, I think with you and I doing the primary portion of this movie and um, doing what we are, you know, first off, it is a privilege to be able to do this every week with you and that you are willing to do it and take the time to watch these movies and um, take care of all of this. But there's a reason, you know, I'm into cinema because you were into cinema. And you were into cinema because your dad was into cinema. And yeah. there's a, you know, much like sports, there is a certain thing of where um, culture and art and um, themes are just passed generationally. And... I'm just appreciating the fact that I get to do this every week. You know, whether or not anybody listens, like I'm I'm enjoying please don't stop listening. Don't don't get me wrong. But I I simply enjoy putting this together and even if the list isn't something what everybody else will agree with, which is kind of the point anyway, I'm just enjoying the fact that it's our list and we put it together. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, it's one of the things, there were two things that my dad and I did together that 
were it because you are old enough to remember my dad. My dad's been gone now for 13 years. And, uh, you know, you were old enough to remember the guy didn't say much. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, you, um, I always called it bonding by osmosis. We either watched a film together mm-hmm. or we watched sports together. And most of the time it was in silence. And, you know, but I mean, we were taught or two weeks ago, we did the dirty dozen. And I remember, I remember exactly where I was and where I was sitting and what chair I was in when I watched that for the first time with him. And it's not like I can remember that minute of details about something but that I remember because he loved that film. Yeah. I, I do think there is a special quality um, that we talk about. And I, I hope it's not sounding um, cliche, but you know, the, the way I've always appreciated the way certain people talk, especially when they, if they were kids. Um, so like your generation, but, um, the people that talk about going to Star Wars for the first time, like, mm. you know, I was five and I, and this extraordinary thing, and I've just, there, there's a certain admiration when you're completely taken away by what's happening on screen. I've, the two best cinema going experiences, we'll get to those in other films that, and I, I will definitely tell because my relationship to those movies is just so special to me but the way you can lose yourself in that i'm appreciative of that and to a certain degree you know on another note i'm sad to see that we may not have the same era of um movie going that we once had where you get to be able to do that where we're gonna have more at home streaming you know automatic stuff instead of being able to go to this so you know, if that does come about, I think there is something that is lost with certain films, um, the spectacle of it that you're going to miss. But uh, ultimately, it's it's a love of this medium that brings us here and that um, I just I, I really appreciate being able to do. Well, uh, having um, your grandfather pick up um my 75-inch TV from Best Buy this afternoon um, to put in the office. <laughs> uh, we're getting, we're going to be pretty soon, pretty close to having a movie uh, theater-style screen by which to watch movies. So when uh, when we get to the point where you can put me in the room with Brando doing The Godfather. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. Then we've gotten to the pinnacle of cinema. Yeah. When I can be but, in the room. But it, 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 there's a, a certain quality of cinema that's so bizarre. It's a collective group of people all getting together in one room to have an individual experience. That's extremely profound. Like, uh, honestly, uh, <laughs> wow. I, I, you know, that's a different thought, so. Well, on that note.
Well, I wish we could talk longer, but uh, I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Um, thank you for everybody for that's been supporting the podcast uh, so far. Um, thank you to any of our guests. Um, and uh, please, as usual, rate, subscribe, review. Um, we've got some exciting movies coming up. Uh, next week, we're covering The Help um, from 2011, and we're following that up with a string of um, other notable films. So David Fincher's uh, Zodiac starring uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Robert Downey Jr., um, Silence of the Lambs, uh, and then uh, Steven Spielberg's second movie on the podcast, E.T., um, all of those are currently on Netflix, so if you want to ha- watch those ahead of time um, to uh, uh, have that fresh in memory for listening to the podcast, um, we'd appreciate it. If uh, anyone is interested in trying to um, get in contact with us, um, all the same normal methods. I'm TJ3Duncan um, on Twitter, um, by email, or um, other mediums. So thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great week. And we'll see you next week for the help. Uh, after we scored it at number five. So it's actually really? behind. Yes. Wow. Which I wouldn't have thought or originally, but um, Back to the Future is still number one. The Best Years of Our Lives is number two. Very, very slightly. Uh, Pulp Fiction 3, Groundhog Day 4, and then Silence of the Lambs. So this one comes in just ahead of Some Like It Hot. Okay. But not bad. Actually, this is uh, episode number 21. I am I was mistaken earlier in the podcast saying that this was uh, episode number 20. Okay. But not bad. I'll take yeah. it. So... All right. So, um, last pieces of housekeeping. We always encourage everybody, it's like Uber, give us five stars. Um, Four stars will even do so that other people can find the podcast um, and uh, we can keep um, going forward. if you need to, I have some snack crackers in the back seat to get the five star. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, otherwise, uh, we will be back again next week doing ET. Uh, I have not um, set what anything. What does that stand for, by the way? Extraterrestrial. It's part uh, of the movie title. Oh. Uh. Okay. Okay. Uh, But after that, we have not yet decided our uh, three remaining, or I guess two remaining, uh, episodes before we get to number 25, our big one yet. Um, We have yet to announce that one as well. Uh, But uh, aren't we not going to announce it? Well, if you'd like to. Well, we could. There's nothing that prevents us. It's our our show. I will let you take that then. Ah, well, it's this is true comfort. This is mac and cheese to me. One of, or probably one of my favorite westerns of all time, if not one of my favorite films of all time. Not for any reason in particular. It's Rio Bravo, John Wayne, 
Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson, Ward Bond, Walter Brennan. And uh, we'll get to it eventually on the episode. This one has um, a lot of intrinsic value to both you and I. And there are so many pieces, because you used to watch this movie all the time when I was a kid, and um, there, are, there are a lot of pieces where I, I just have very fond memories of watching this movie. So um, if uh, anybody needs to find it, it is on the new HBO Max. Um, E.T. for next week is on Netflix, so you can find it there. If you, uh, By the way, if you, we just found this out by happenstance. If you have Dish or... Um, any cable provider or any cable provider where you pay to have uh, HBO and or and Cinemax or I think either one, um, you can get HBO Max streaming service by signing in through your um, Internet or your uh, satellite or cable provider. Yes, they are doing away with HBO Go and uh, and rebranding HBO Now. Um, as services, HBO now is going to be like just the HBO, um, like reduced version of pay for stream. So, um, but those will still be, uh, or those are changing as we go forward, but HBO max, uh, I've found quite a few things already to try and watch and get through on some of my personal watching projects for that. So, uh, otherwise, uh, we will be back, like I said, next week, um, and uh, as always, I wish we could chat longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Not something that, like, I'm opposed to revisiting either. So I gave it a five, just the basic straight middle of the road. Four. I'd have to be in the right frame of mind. Understandable. I, I like this is a tougher subject because of you know the murders and other things that are going on in this. So, Sarah, I'm gonna skew and go up and go with a seven, um, just because of what I actually enjoy. I mean, I do really enjoy true crime and. I, I go out of my way to watch, you know, the Ted Bundy documentaries and stuff like this, so. All right. It's going to be so, Mike Myers. I married a serial killer. No. Wasn't it I married an axe murderer? Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. You can't was get any names of anything, anything right tonight. <laughs> yes, I can, Henry. I don't even understand that reference, so okay. But... Uh, I'd have to look back through as to see um, some of our uh, audience scores, but I think this was probably one of our lowest uh, ones. It had a 77 for a 7.7 overall score on this. So uh, just to recap, that was a 6.3 at Legacy, uh, 3.5 at Impact Significance, 5.8 for Novelty, 7.7 for Classicness, 5.3 5.3 for rewatchability and 7.7 for audience score for a grand total of, if you're counting at home, 36.3. So that puts it ahead of The Help, 
but just behind Inglorious Bastards. So, Sarah, you have now been on two of the podcasts that are the lowest on the list. How do you feel? Well, if you would ever actually watch some really great silent films with me, that would change, but you refuse. Because... We don't want to completely lose the audience this early on. Okay, um, if anybody who <laughs> out there loves the movie as a cult classic silent film, Metropolis, please write Tom and tell him what an idiot he's being for refusing to watch it. I haven't refused. I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. If, Since it was if, taken off of if, TCM. If we get one person who writes us with the idea of Metropolis, other than Sarah, or somebody <laughs> Sarah solicits to do it, <laughs> I would be shocked. Shocked. <laughs> like you're shocked to find gambling in this establishment? Yes, that was where I was going, because, of course, that's one of the great lines of all time with for Claude Rains. So... Anyway, yes. So, all right. Um, that's going to at least cap off the regular portion of this episode uh, for this week. Um, and uh, we're hoping that for next week, uh, we already said earlier in the podcast that we were doing uh, Silence of the Lambs, but um, we uh, are hoping to have another guest star on for next week uh, to help us with that one. So, um, before we cut off, you had something you wanted to uh, add in? Yes, we're uh, recording this on, on June 24th, uh, 2020. Um, and I'm just going to do a shout out, because he never really ever had any recognition or any remembrance other than his immediate family. But today would have been my dad's 80th birthday. And... Um, Considering that he's the reason I'm named this after a movie actor and the fact that he was such a big cinema and movie guy and really kind of installed that in me and ultimately is a trickle down to you, I just thought that as part of this cast or web uh, or this uh, podcast that we should at least recognize that. So uh, to that, I just make note of that because the, his name was Ronald Duncan. And, um, you know, this is going to be this is probably the most uh, notoriety he's gotten in his life. Probably if more than uh, a dozen people watch this or listen to this. Um, so and with that, I'll just close out and just beg everybody, please, please, if you smoke, stop. And if you're not, if you don't. Don't start. Uh, well said. Um, again, I, I think, you know, ultimately this is somewhat of a testament to that legacy. And so um, it's fitting that you would add that in there. Um, so, uh, all right. All things considered, as far as housekeeping, we have uh, Silence of the Lambs coming up. Uh, then followed by E.T. Uh, we have not decided uh, a couple of the movies after that, but this is our 20th episode. 
which means our specialty episode for the 25th is coming up here in the next few weeks. We have yet to pick that one specifically, but uh, I am hoping to not only have a good one, but to... I know they're trying to show the opinions of that time, but, like, it's not a movie about um, gay people. We're not doing milk. So why throw that in there? Other than you're doing it for comedic effect, at which point it loses any meaning anyway. Yeah, no, Tate Taylor was, um, uh, is, is a, 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 is gay, um, has been in a long-term relationship with a, a producer in Hollywood, so I don't know. Um, apparently he didn't have a problem with some of the jokes, or I don't know. Well, I know that we're in a different place where, like, these jokes were much more commonplace. And again, this movie happened before, like, the national tone had even changed on um, being LGBT friendly, let alone um, in the way that we're currently on. I mean, we're a couple of days removed from um, employment protection decisions um, and a few years removed even from basically the complete... Um, opinion flip on gay marriage, but um, yeah. even so, it's it, it just you you. I didn't think this was would age as poorly or poorly as it did. So, what did you have? I had a two. Uh, I had a four. I I have a very difficult time. I mean, I reserve my right to give twos 